holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears to wipe them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. good to see you. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing, acceptable in your sight through Christ, your son, for we pray in his name. Amen. All Saints turned 18 on Tuesday, and I joked with our staff in our staff meeting that that now means we're old enough to buy cigarettes. And then I was told that actually the law has been changed, and now you have to be 21. So we've got a few more years, but regardless, we've reached a milestone as a church. And it's weird to turn 18 in this time in the midst of a pandemic. Not long ago, I imagined we'd be finishing up with COVID and this would be an opportune time to do two things, which would be, number one, to rearticulate the vision and identity of our church. And then second of all, to have a capital campaign. We're gonna continue with both of those, but why rearticulate the identity and vision of our church now? Well, in large part, because many of you are new to All Saints. Part of what COVID has done is sped up the trajectories that people were already on before it hit. And so some people were already on the way out the door of their church and have come here. Others were on their way out from All Saints and are not here anymore. Others were on the way out from the church in general and no longer identifying as a Christian or at least worshiping as one. And the pandemic sped up that, tra that trajectory. But it's not just with that, it's also with our marriages. Now, there were marriages that were already struggling and COVID amplified those issues and then moved those couples more fully and more quickly into the crisis that they had already begun. Same is true for some of you in work. You're here because you're thinking about a job change and COVID sped up that decision. 
But also that could be said about substance abuse and addiction. Could also be said about depression and mental illness. I had another friend last week, we prayed for him this morning, who committed suicide this past week after years and years of mental illness. And so the pandemic has amplified many issues that were already present and hit the fast forward button on them. And that's why many of you are here. There's many new faces. If you look around All Saints and you think, I don't know many people, you are not alone. Do not feel like you're alone in that. It's true for many of us. And so that's why we're going to do this sermon series called All Saints in Vision, to witness and to bless. We're gonna be re-articulating our identity over these next seven weeks. And the second part of that, the witness and bless part, relates to this capital campaign, which you've probably heard of. I sent out a video on Friday that said that I and several others have been working on this campaign for the majority of this year, and the Lord's been very, very faithful. We've already seen 75% of the $7.7 million pledged. So 25% left there, 1.7 left, and we hope that you all will participate with us in that. You'll have an opportunity to do so. But this sermon series is what we're, we're going to do is to rearticulate the vision and then connect it to this campaign. And we're gonna use the Gospel of Luke, particularly the parables in the Gospel of Luke. And the ones that I've chosen are very much descriptive of us. But they're not just descriptive of us, they're also aspirational for us about who we are, but also who we more fully want to and need to become. And today we begin with the parable of the sinful woman. It's kind of a notorious parable. And I hope that we'll especially see what it's like to have Jesus as our king through it. This woman finds Jesus as her king and two things come with him, clarity and protection. And I want you to know this is truly foundational for our identity and vision as a church. First of all, clarity. There's a television show that's making headlines right now. It's entitled C. Do you know the show? It's on Apple TV. And as a disclaimer, it's at least PG-13. Very close to R-rated, if not there. And it stars Jason Momoa, otherwise known as Aquaman. And it's kind of Aquaman meets Mad Max because it's post-apocalyptic science fiction. It's this drama that sets several centuries into the future, maybe 500 years or so, after a virus has hit the world and wiped out almost all of humanity with the exception of two million people. And the two million that are left, they're left blind on a genetic level, meaning that the children born after this virus are also blind. So the entire human race has lost the ability to see, hence the title. And it's fascinating, but it's frightening as well. The show is very violent. It's kind of Aquaman meets Mad Max meets Braveheart. So this is why Alyssa is not watching this show with me, as you can imagine. But I think that the gratuitous violence at times is part of the point. I think there's questions being asked by it, including if we don't actually truly see one another, do we become less empathetic towards them and therefore more violent? And also on an even deeper societal level, I think it's asking, are we as humans becoming more like this? As, as those who are wandering around helplessly in the dark, not knowing what is true, what knowing what is false, not agreeing about what is true, right, good, and beautiful, and in our blindness, brutally killing everyone. Maybe that's us, according to the show. And throughout the scriptures, one of the primary and essential images for God is that of a king. And when God as king shows up through the Bible, he brings clarity. Clarity about what is true, about what is right, about what is good, what is beautiful, and we find that here in our gospel reading. It's early in the gospel of Luke. Jesus is just beginning to come onto the scene and begin his public ministry. 
And as he shows up, he begins to clarify everything. His presence and his word clarify everything about this man named Simon and about this woman who is unnamed, but is very intentionally called a sinner. And you need to know that in the gospel of Luke, a sinner is a technical term. It's, it's a categorical term. It doesn't refer to this, the common sinfulness of all people, us included, but rather it refers to the most notorious moral failures and social outcasts of that day. So, so think about those that for whatever reason, for whatever they've done or has been done to them, they walk around with a figurative scarlet letter on their chest and everyone sees it. And maybe some of you know what that's like because of something you've done, that's something that's been done to you, something in your past, you do or you feel like you walk around with that figurative, scarlet, self-canceling letter on your chest. In some situations, in some places in particular, you feel like that. This place at this dinner is a place like that for this woman. But notices, notice that she bursts onto the scene here. Verse 37 says, behold, or look, look. Luke wants us to take notice here. Today, we, would, we wouldn't say a woman of the city, which is how he describes her. We would say a woman of the night. That's the way we'd say it. She's a prostitute, a sex worker. And she bursts in unannounced and uninvited into this Pharisee's dining room. This man named Simon. Simon was a known man, a public figure, a leader in this city. And he's named because he's known. And some of you are like this. Many of you are like this. More of you are like this man, at least on this level, than this woman. Because you're, you're known, at least in circles, maybe across our city, maybe across our state, across the nation, business and politics, you're known. Imagine this happening to you at your house here in Austin. You're having a dinner party and an escort crashes your party. And everyone knows the woman. They, everyone knows her name. They don't mention her name. They don't say her name. They know her. She looks different now. First of all, she's weeping in verse 38. So are these tears, tears of sorrow, tears of, of sadness, or are they tears of thankfulness, tears of joy, or are they somehow both? You all who have listened to me long enough know that when I ask those questions, I like the answer, both. I think they're both here. Tears of sorrow, but also tears of thankfulness because she seems to already know Jesus. She seems to be the one who's already encountered him. And that makes this encounter all the more scandalous because then secondly, she's not only weeping, but she bows down, which is another sign of sorrow, even a sign of thankfulness. It's a sign of what it means to be in front of a king. This is a, a kingly scene. And she's weeping on his feet and kissing his feet with her hair down. It's almost too uncomfortable even to describe because in that culture, in an ancient Palestinian Jewish culture, women didn't let their hair down. The only place they let their hair down like this was in the bedroom with their spouse. She's not in a bedroom. She's in a dining room. And she's doing this with Jesus. It's not a client. It's Jesus. Again, it's almost too uncomfortable to describe. And what she's brought with him doesn't help, or with her. Verse 37 says that she's brought an alabaster flask of ointment. That's all she's brought with her. Perfume. It was the, the singular representative object of her trade, something that's representative of her, of who she is, of what she, done, she does, everything that the world has done to her, the, the totality of all of her bad, broken choices. She brings this, and this only, and she brings it out of hiding, out of the bedroom, into the dining room, full view of everyone. And she brings it to Jesus in the light of his presence and she's weeping over it, acknowledging it before him and before everyone that the, her life has not been good. It's not been right. 
It's not been beautiful, but she's ready for a change. She's seeking change here. Jesus's presence has clarified everything for her about her life and her world. And friends, I don't have to tell you that there is so much confusion in our world, in our culture right now, but what is right and what is not, what's true, what's beautiful, what's good. Pervasive and postmodern belief is that truth is really just a personal preference. Truth is really just opinion predicated upon individual feelings. So for us, individualism and existentialism, that rules the day. In other words, how you feel individually is how you determine what is true. And the cardinal sin of our era is if you ever violate what someone else feels individually about what's true, especially if it pertains to them. And I just wonder if we've become more and more people like this TV show C, bumping around and groping around in the dark, not able, never agreeing about what is true. There's an article that came out in the Atlantic this past week entitled The New Puritans. And Anne Applebaum is the author, and she references Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, which I mentioned just a moment ago. And through it, she describes what she sees as a new form of mob justice. She writes this, she says, Scarlet Letters are a thing of the past, except, of course, they're not. She says, right here in America, right now, it is possible to meet people who have lost everything, jobs, money, friends, colleagues, after violating no laws, and sometimes no workplace rules either. Instead, they have broken or are accused of having broken social codes, having to do with race, sex, personal behavior, or even acceptable humor, which may not have existed five years ago or even five months ago. Some, no doubt, have made egregious errors in judgment. Some, though, have done nothing wrong, and it's not always easy to tell. It is not always easy to tell. She is right. We do live in a very confused and confusing time, but having a king cuts through it all. It cuts through the confusion because what is true, right, good, and beautiful is no longer predicated upon us, upon our own individual feelings, but it's predicated upon him. And he is something very, very objective. A king's presence is very objective, especially Jesus's presence here. It is very objective. His presence has an effect, especially when he speaks. Simon, I have something to say to you. God's word is always like this. This is one of the foundational hallmark convictions at All Saints, that anytime you open God's word, anytime at all, and you read it, it's like Jesus speaking here, and it comes to you personally, and it comes with absolute power, and it comes to change. It comes personally to you with absolute power, and it comes to change. What happens here in this passage is what happens right now. It is what is happening right now. It's what happens each and every week. Each and every week we gather, people like Simon, people like this woman, all together here, and we open God's word and Jesus speaks to us with very, very personal, absolute power, intending to change us, and something happens. Simon, I have something to say to you. So whose word determines what you think of and embrace as true? Through whose word do you see what is right and good and beautiful? And by what authority do you attempt to live your life and see this world? In other words, who is your king? And does he clarify? Does he clarify? Does he cut through the confusion? Beyond clarity, secondly, having Jesus also brings protection. Uh, when we were redesigning our All Saints logo seven or eight years ago, and the logo is here on the front of your worship bulletin, 
Uh, we chose a shield as our base image. There's several different images here piled on top of one another, combining, but the, a shield is the base image. And one of the questions or even critiques that I received then is whether or not having a shield as the base image would communicate something of an aggressive, arrogant, or even oppositional posture to those outside, especially even non-Christians. And my answer then and my answer now is that the opposite is in fact the intent because a shield is a, is a humble image. It's defensive, especially as it's used throughout the Bible, especially and particularly in the Psalms. Throughout the Psalms, if you were to read them, the shield, a shield is always used coming er, as early as Psalm 3, which is our call to worship and why I chose it, because many of the Psalms are like this. Psalm 3 is a cry to God for help in the midst of foes that cannot be resisted, much less defeated. The psalmists are, are very emphatic that we have foes, that you have foes in this world. And for you, it might be a particular person. It could be a group of people. It could be a disease. Josh prayed for the many who are sick. It could be a vice. It could be a struggle that's ongoing. You, you have a foe. And Psalms like Psalm 3 cry out and say, you are my shield. And the, the statement is also a petition. Be to me a shield in this moment, in this situation. I need you to protect me. So do not be naive. We need a shield. Everyone needs a shield. And Psalm 3 here for this woman, it could be a commentary on her life and what she experiences here. Oh Lord, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him, for her and God. It's effectively what Simon says to himself, that this woman's beyond God's reach, that her, her life is, is in no way possibly to be recovered or to change, touching her, getting involved with her in any way, shape or form. It'll just drag whoever tries into her own uncleanness. And you need to understand that the religious leaders of Israel's day had taken the Old Testament ceremonial and purity laws and applied them in such a rigid way that severe categories existed in their mind through which they saw the world. They saw everything as either clean or unclean, especially people. And for people like them who had supposedly made themselves clean through good and, and moral and religious and ceremonial acts, above all, they were not to touch anyone or especially anything that might be unclean, to have nothing to do, not to open themselves up to it. And that is how Simon sees this woman. That's this woman in Simon's eyes. And Jesus challenges the way that he sees. Verse 44, he says, do you see this woman? Directly to Simon. Simon, do you see her? And the answer is no, he does not see her. He doesn't see her the way that God sees her. He doesn't see her as categorically the same as him. He sees himself as categorically different. And Simon needs to join this woman. He needs to join her in her weeping. In fact, he's far, off, far worse off spiritually before God than she is because he thinks he's far better off than she is. And so Jesus defends her from Simon as graceless, self-righteous, moralizing. You are a shield about me. It's a difficult preposition to translate from Hebrew to English. It really means all around or everywhere. Some translations read, you cover me with a shield. That's what Jesus does here. He covers her. And there's power in his defense. Simon, I have something to say to you about her. Do you believe that there's any real power in Jesus's word? This story, the parable that he tells in it depicts a soul-altering, life-changing power that comes when Jesus speaks. He speaks, everything changes. Everything changes. His word is the last word. 
There's no response. There's no, there's no possible objection here. Everything changes because he's a king and kings speak with absolute power. Our New Testament reading here, turn back one page to page seven. Our New Testament reading from Ephesians, it's about power. Paul prays here that these Christians would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That word toward there in verse 19, it's probably better translated in or through. Speaking about God's power, and think about this, not just being something that's toward us in an external sense, but is in or through us who believe. And this power, Paul says, is hyperbolon, megathos, dynamos. Now y'all know that I love Greek. Hyperbolos, megathos, dynamos, but you can hear the English. Can't you hear it? Hyper, hyperbole, it's exaggerated, exceedingly exaggerated to the point of incomparability. The only way that we can talk about power is through comparison. It's the only way we know how to talk about it. For example, a single day, in a single day, the average hurricane generates enough power for the entire world to operate for 200 years. Think about that. One day of a hurricane creates enough energy for us for 200 years. And the average hurricane also releases about six times 10 to the 14th power of joules of energy every second. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. I just, I just read that somewhere. I have no idea what that means. I can't even do my seventh graders math. But I also know that a nuclear bomb is only two times 10 to the 17th power of joules of energy. In other words, every second of a hurricane is more powerful than a nuclear bomb. Every second. A nuclear bomb is not even comparable to the power of a hurricane. And that's what Paul is saying. The immeasurable greatness, the incomparable greatness of God's power. It's not even on the scale. It's not even on the spectrum. And it's not just toward you or for you in an external sense. It's in you or through you, flowing through you in an internal sense. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's praying that these people would know, not just know about, but know. Psalm 62, 11 says that power belongs to God. That means that anything or anyone that has power, it's because God has given it, shared it, delegated it with that thing or that person. And here, Jesus takes Simon's power back. He takes his power back. And he does so through his word. Through his word, Jesus undoes Simon's power and imparts power to her. That's why she does what she does. That's how she can live this way. That's how she can be so courageous. Simon's the coward. He's the one that's hiding in the back. He's the one that's speaking to himself. She's the one that's acting courageously before everyone as a full spectacle to the entire city. She's the one that has courage because she's the one that has power here. So do you read God's word like this? Like Jesus has something to say to you. When he says it, it has incomparable divine power to change you and to shield you from whatever it is that the world would say. And you know what the world says. You know what the world says to you. It says you're a failure. At school, at work, with friends, in life, you're a failure, no one wants you. Or it says you're single, so you don't belong. Or you're divorced, and so there must be something really wrong with you. Or you had an abortion, and so you're shameful and unacceptable ever. Or you've been sexually assaulted, and the world says, well, it's probably your fault. Or it says, you've been accused of, of assaulting someone or mistreating someone. Oh, you're really just the victim. Or you're older. 
you're washed up. You have nothing to offer. Or that's in your past, or this is in your past. You're that type of sinner. You're categorically different. You are unforgivable. Those are the world's messages. You know the world's message. You know the world's message to you. They're innumerable. I could go on and on and on. They're innumerable, but they all boil down to this story. You need a king whose word is like a shield that possesses real, divine, life-altering power. And Jesus's does. What we speak about as the gospel, the good news of Jesus does. Who does this parable say that God is willing to forgive? Is it willing to forgive Simon? Is it willing to forgive this woman? Or is it willing to forgive both? You know how I like to answer those questions? says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled both. A denarii was a day's wage. So two years of wages versus two months of wages. So who is Jesus willing to forgive? Both. It's not about the amount that's owed. It's about the fact that they couldn't pay. The payment was impossible for them. And that is Jesus's message to you. Jesus's message to you, and regardless of what the world says to you about you, his message to you is that you can have him as king, that he can be your king, that he wants to be your king. He longs to be your king, one who forgives. You can receive him and his welcome of you, and he will defend you. He will defend you the way that he defends this woman to the very death against any foe. In fact, he already has. You know, there's only two ways that a debt can be paid. Here's where I close. There's only two ways. One, either the one who owes the debt pays it. The one who owes pays. Or the one who is owed absorbs the cost. There's only two ways a debt can be paid. And in Christ, God has absorbed the loss. He has absorbed the loss for you, for me, for us all, that is the depth with which he loves us. He has absorbed the cost of our selfishness, of our foolishness, of our rebellious running from God, from all the wrong that we've done, from all the wrong that's been done to us, all the things, all the things that we've said or done like Simon does to this woman, all of it absorbed and paid when Jesus died on the cross. They ask, who is this that can forgive sins? And the answer is the one who's going to the cross to absorb them all. In the TV show, See, that I've mentioned several times, there's an evil queen. And she's on the brink of losing her kingdom in a coup, and so she decides she's gonna kill everybody. Everyone. And she does. She destroys this dam that sends forth a flood upon her entire kingdom and wipes out and kills everyone. And right before she does so, she says something truly profound. She says, I will not die for them. They will all die for me. That is all the kings and the queens of this world. But our king has a kingdom who is not of this world, and he has said the exact opposite. They will not die for me. I will die for them, and he has. And that is what Jesus says to you this day. What he says to you is that you are loved this much, and if you are in Christ, your faith has saved you. God's grace has been extended to you. God's power is in you and flows through you because you have a king. And what do those who have Jesus as king do? Where's it all in? What, what does this woman do? She loves. They love much. That's what people who have Jesus as king do. To love is to give yourself away. All you are, all you have, unabashedly, unashamedly, gratuitously give everything away. That's what this woman does. All she had was her perfume. All she had. 
and she pours it out upon Jesus for the sake and the blessing of everyone all around her, even her enemies. And that's what it's like to be a Christian. That, that is the Christian life. This woman's life is the Christian life. And that's why we're doing anything that we do. It's why we're doing this campaign. It's to love others well. It's to seek to welcome others the way that Jesus welcomes this woman. In this campaign, there's a new hospitality room so we can better welcome others. There's a new playground so that the one that's here and is only zero to four isn't like Lord of the Flies each week out here between the services. And there's a new soccer field to welcome people from our church, outside our church, all spaces to welcome others the way that Jesus welcomes this one because we have a king who welcomes people like this. So you have a king, read his word, read his word. May his word be more precious to you than anything. And listen to what he has to say to you. And in Christ, with him, through him, give your life away the way that he has already given his life away for you. Love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might be a people like this woman with true courage, with true spiritual power to do that which otherwise we could not do. So we thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of your son. We thank you that his very power, the very power of your spirit flows in and among and through your people. We pray that this would be truly precious and delightful to us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.